You are listening to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a show covering the hometown Milwaukee Brewers as we analyze the roster, report on the latest rumors, and discuss their quest to bring the World Series trophy to Milwaukee for the first time. Here are your hosts, Peter and David Goh. Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. I am your host, Peter Goh, alongside my host, David David, we're coming down to the wire here. It's pretty crazy to think about the fact that the Brewers' season, regular season, nearly over. Uh, I think about 20 games left to go. And uh, Brewers certainly still in the hunt for the playoffs, which is, of course, exciting um, in some sense. And quietly, we were talking before we uh, the mics were hot, quietly took four out of five in their most recent homestand at American Family Field. I, sure doesn't, sound, doesn't feel like the Brewers are playing great baseball, but... They were able to win four out of five, and they now find themselves still in contention uh, for a wild card spot. So how are you today, and uh, how are you feeling as a Brewer fan today? Well, I'm feeling better as a Brewer fan than I did a week ago, coming off their their dropping of three out of four against Arizona and two out of three against Colorado, a little bit following that. I would say that I do still think they have a chance, but we'll get into that a little bit more later. It's it's like one of those things where this team will win games that they shouldn't, and then they lose games that they should. And if they could just be a little bit better in one of those areas, like they that's a legit playoff team. But I don't know if they are because they're kind of stuck in the middle. Yeah. And it's uh, disappointing, to say the least, I think, uh, going into our this season's expectations. And the talent the Brewers have, both on the mound, position players, of course, bullpen, both going into the year and where they sit today, still a very talented team to find themselves still on the outside looking in. But like you said, we'll touch on the Brewers' playoff chances at the end of the podcast today. But our trivia question before we get too deep into content is this. The Brewers have used 51 players so far this year, of course, you've got a 25-man active roster for the majority of the season. Brewers have used 51 players. David, is this more or less than the Brewers used in the entire 2021 season? So that's our trivia question for today. Again, as always, answer to that podcast question, or excuse me, to the trivia question at the end of the podcast. David, who do you have today for our random player of the day? Random player of the day is Quinton Berry. He currently is the Brewers' first base coach, but he also played for the Brewers a few years ago. Overall, he played parts of five seasons in the major leagues with the Tigers, Red Sox, Orioles, Cubs, and then finally the Brewers. He went to high school with Adam Jones, the former Orioles outfielder. That was in San Diego, and he was a fifth-round pick out of San Diego State. From 2013 to 2017, 74% of Quinton Berry's games that he appeared in were as a pinch runner. So that was his, he, he was the, the Terrence score of his team. He did play a bit of outfield in his rookie year with the Tigers in 2012. And he actually played in the World Series that year, 2012, with the Tigers. And then in 2013 with the Red Sox as well. And now he is, of course, the Brewers' first base coach. I think people don't really realize that he played for the Brewers a few years ago. Not that surprising because it was rather uneventful. He played in seven games and went 0 for 3 and was 2 for 3 on stolen base attempts. 
So not hard to, to forget that. But then he ended up staying around in the organization after that and then ended up becoming a coach. He became, I think it was their, like their minor league base running and outfield coordinator, something like that, and then got added to the, the major league coaching staff going into 2021, where he now serves as the first base coach and the base running and outfield coach. Yeah, he's always the uh, classic first base coach with the stopwatch in the pocket and certainly has an expertise on base running, both from his experience and his years as a coach. So there we go. I actually, yeah, I, I did forget Barry um, played with the Brewers briefly there. Uh, very uneventful career. Maybe uh, Tim Unro-esque, I might uh, compare it to. So uh, Quinton Barry, our random player of the day today, a rather random player that is for today. So David, a couple of players uh, on the injured list, a couple of, of course, notable players, Freddie Peralta, Eric Lauer, and Aaron Ashby. Timetable on those players varies a little bit. Uh, Freddie Peralta shared after returning to the injured list, of course, after a brief stint off. Um, Peralta did say he's he's pretty confident that he will be able to return later in the year. Uh, Lauer, a couple weeks back, uh, likely before we see him. Uh, and then Ashby, probably the most uh, most upcoming, I guess I would say, between the three that will we'll be likely to see them. Uh, so David, first off, uh, any notes on the timetable of Peralta, Lauer, and Ashby? Then, of course, we can get to how the Brewers can continue to try to compete without three of their key arms. I'll start with Ashby since he should return the soonest. He just got off a mound recently and is expected to be back pretty soon. The caveat that, that comes with his return is that the Brewers do plan to use him as a reliever when he comes back. They think that it'll be a little bit too difficult to build him up as a starter coming back from injury. So that's the route they're going to decide to go on with Ashby. Lauer should be back in about two weeks from elbow inflammation officially is the injury that he was placed on the IL with. That would put us at about September 25th. So presumably would get probably just two starts in, in the regular season, maybe a third one when he comes back. Freddie, there's not exactly as clear of a timetable. He is optimistic that he'll return this year. He has shoulder inflammation. The good part with with uh, all three of them, but specifically Freddie and Lauer going on the IL this past week, is that there's no structural damage from the MRIs that either of them have. So it's really just when they're feeling a little bit better, then each of them will be able to begin throwing and resume that. And presumably they won't be out long. Both are expected to be back in roughly the minimum 15 days that their IL stint requires. Yeah, certainly good to hear. Brewers will need all three of those arms as they try to make a push for the playoffs. I was looking at, at some of the performance of those three pitchers across this year. Peralta obviously has, hasn't had a full season, only 70 innings so far in 2022. But, you know, obviously kind of a season riddled with injuries. But he has still been effective, a 3.45 ERA across 70 innings. He overall has been still solid for the most part when he's been healthy, when he's been on the mound. Um, kind of interesting, his strikeout per nine is down pretty significantly. It was at 12.2 last year, dropped down to 9.7. Maybe that's somewhat related to the injuries, not totally sure. I wouldn't necessarily make any, um, I guess, analysis based off of that. Uh, but interesting to see, like I said, Peralta still has been quite effective. Eric Lauer uh, as well, certainly hasn't been quite the same pitcher that he was for the Brewers in 2021. But when you look at the, the numbers that he's put up, 
2021, he had 118 innings. He's already pitched 145 innings uh, this year, and he hasn't been, uh, he hasn't, you know, made every single start himself either. And overall, his numbers, they have dipped a little bit from last year when we look at um, strikeouts per nine and walks per nine, just barely. Um, and ERA has dropped as well. Interesting to see that his, his FIP last year was 4.04, this year 4.75 but his ERA is pretty significantly lower, 3.19 last year and 3.91 this year. But I say all this to say, I think that we can certainly be um, easy to to be discontent with with Eric Lauer's performance this year. And and he still has been solid. I mean, there's not a ton of guys who throw 148 innings um, and put up the numbers that that Lauer does later in in a rotation like he has. So there are certainly valuable arms that the Brewers need back um, if the Brewers have any chance of making a deep run this this postseason, it's going to require all three of those arms, and hopefully the Brewers do get all three back. As as like you said, um, it's it's not necessarily structural damage, but more so when they're able to pitch, which also means that there's no guarantee we'll see all three back by the end of the year. So certainly we'll be rooting for um, the return of those. And I think Ashby has a chance to perhaps build back some confidence after somewhat inconsistent, shaky year this year. Maybe he can come back, uh, dominate coming out of the bullpen, which would be good to see, uh, see him bolster up some confidence, get some momentum going into the 2022-2023 the offseason. Let's shift our, our focus to a completely different topic, uh, pun very much intended there, on new rule changes that are, will be in place for the 2023 season across Major League Baseball, one of those, of course, involving the shift. Uh, but I think a big one as well, was a pitch clock. That's This has been talked about for years. Um, so the implementation of a pitch clock, like I said, the shift restriction uh, implemented, and then also a small change to bases in Major League Baseball, David. So first off, David, can you share how these, these rules were passed? Um, I, I know that Robert Manfred can't just pass an executive order. So uh, share a little bit on how uh, this goes uh, in, in place, and especially in September here uh, when we're not in the offseason. Actually, in the past, I believe that Manfred did have the right to just unilaterally implement certain things. And I don't know if these would fall under that umbrella. But the way that they they worked it this time is they created an 11-person committee that reviews rules and can implement rule changes. And they agreed upon about this in the, the CBA agreements in the offseason last year that resulted in the lockout. Coming out of it, this was one of the agreements they had made. But as part of the committee, they have six members of the commissioner's office, four players, and then one umpire. So there could be rules that only have support of the commissioner's office that do pass. The MLB Players Association claimed that they were against the shift restrictions and against the pitch clock rule. And while, yes, that may be true, and they voted against it, they also enabled the commissioner's office to be able to pass them this time around by what they did in the offseason last year. So they they pretty much expected that this was going to be something that was passed for next year, and they, they allowed that to happen. So that's kind of how, how it happens and how they agree upon things. Um, and there are, I, I'm sure it's far more complicated, but that's just kind of the, the bird's eye view over how these rules were passed. And this is a unique, a unique committee um, and a, a unique way. I don't I don't believe that there's ever been a committee like this that did change rules. Yeah, and, and certainly some, I would say, influential rule changes 
I mean, does this change the way that, that baseball as a game is played? No, but it does make some changes to uh, important parts of the game. Um, so what, what would you say is uh, the most impactful, or actually even before I jump into the, the most impactful, why don't I just summarize a little bit of some of the things that, that we're seeing and, and what some of those changes will be. Uh, first off, the pitch clock. Like I mentioned, this has been talked about for years and years. Uh, a couple of highlights on the pitch clock. It'll be a 15-second pitch clock with nobody on, 20-second pitch clock with runners on. Uh, they also implemented, I guess whatever you want to call it, a hitter's clock. Uh, hitters will need to be in the box within eight seconds. Uh, and if a hitter violates the, the rule, automatic strike um, on the flip side as well. If a pitcher violates it, it's an automatic ball. This one here, I would say, uh, surprised me the most. Um, I can share a little bit more on my thoughts on this one, but the pitchers can step off or pick off two times per plate appearance. Uh, that does reset if a runner advances, but the third pickoff or third step off, uh, that must result in an out or else a balk will be called. So I guess as a, as complicated as the rule book of baseball is, I feel like this adds another complication to, to constantly be thinking about, uh, but also adds different unique strategy as well. I'm not a huge fan of that, but Anyways, those are just some highlights of the pitch clock. David, what do you see as the most influential, impactful to the game amongst those many changes? I think that the the, the overall pitch clock, the 15 seconds with nobody on, 20 seconds with runners on, and what that might do for the pace, I think that's what is going to be the biggest change. I think the biggest change will be in the way we watch the game, not so much in the way the game is played, but more so in the length. I think they've done a lot of gimmicky things to try to improve the length of game, but they weren't really getting anywhere with them. We think of the intentional walk rule that saved 29 seconds per game. Think of the three batter minimum rule that I don't even know if that really saved any time, but these little rules that didn't really do anything, even putting the timer up in the ballpark, that doesn't really mean anything. Those things don't really accomplish much and they cut down the game by a minute and a half. But we saw a big difference in minor league game time. Last year when they put these in, they put it to an 18 seconds with runners on, 14 with nobody on. And that cut minor league games down by 29 minutes. So instead of being about three hours, they became just under two and a half. That's a big difference. I'm not sure if MLB will see that big of a difference because the pitch clock is a little bit longer. But I would expect to at least see a good 15 minutes shaved off the average time. I think there will be a legitimate change, and I think it will be one that's good, and I think it's one that's pretty organic when I watch a minor league game. To be honest, I don't really notice the pitch clock. I've watched a number of minor league games over the past year or two that have been under the pitch clock. I don't think that really a whole lot of change will be noticed by the fans once the fans get over that initial psychological impact of having a clock on the field that actually means something. Well, I think having the clock on the field for these last couple of years, I don't know that that was even geared towards the objective of trying to shorten games, but more so get players and fans used to having a clock on just in stadiums, knowing that this rule was potentially coming down the line. Um, and I think that was probably a big reason for that clock up before. Uh, but I think that it's also likely that MLB implements this rule depending how it goes, depending how much this cuts down game time. They also, you know, if players begin to get used to with 15, 20 uh, for the clock, they may in the future, of course, drop that down to 14, 18 or, or something else too. 
Um, so it could be a, a stair-stepped approach. And I, I haven't paid too much attention. I've been to just a few minor league games that implemented the clock. I haven't, I haven't paid attention to it, but I also didn't notice it. So that, I guess, speaks to itself as well. So I guess if it's not going to impact the game uh, and the integrity of the game, I would say I'm, I'm not against it. I'm not in a rush to, you know, shorten game significantly. But if if they're telling me the data shows that they can expect to cut down 15 minutes even of a of an MLB game by, in my opinion, not really changing much of anything, I'm not necessarily opposed to this. I, I didn't love it when I heard it, but when I heard the data that they had in the minor leagues and, and how they decided to implement these rules, it made a little bit more sense. But I want to focus a little bit on maybe a bit of a nuanced rule, and maybe this is just me, but... The, the rule around pitchers only being allowed to step off or pick off two times per play appearance, I'm not at all a fan of this. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts, David, as a pitcher yourself and someone that has to control the running game. What are your thoughts on, on this rule? Is this, is this MLB just trying to speed up the game? Are they trying to create greater opportunity for stolen bases? What do you think? It's some of both they're trying to do. I'm not a fan of it at all. I can't really remember the last time that I saw a pitcher that just repeatedly was throwing pickoffs. I mean, the reality might be that base stealing is down so much over the past decade compared to how it was 30, 40 years ago that there's not as much of a need for that. But also, I don't really see that being that much of an issue. So I think I think maybe it's a little bit time, but then it's more so the the impact on on stolen bases it adds a different level of strategy because you have to think about how many times you're going to throw over or when you're going to throw over the runners thinking that the runner might try to take a little bit of an extra lead thinking well he just used his first pickoff i don't think he's going to use his second pickoff because he probably doesn't think he's going to get me it does add a, a different level of intrigue but it's 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 different i don't know if i like it i think eventually i'll get used to it but I don't know that it's my favorite. Yeah, I would agree. It's a different it's a different strategy. It's just a different way to think about it. Um, but I think that as a as a pitcher, limiting that much, like if they wanted to put in a, a rule that says you know you couldn't throw five pickoff moves in a row or five even five pickoffs per plate appearance, fine. Like I mean, how many people are really doing that? Like you said, extremely rare. But when you think about a guy who's you know is a good base runner who's has a decent shot that he's going to steal a base. If you can only throw two times per plate appearance, that that is not a lot at all. So it certainly gives a lot of advantage of a base runner. And like you said, if I'm a pitcher and I throw over once, you're, you're going to think twice before throwing it over the second time. And Because once you throw over twice, they can almost for sure guess you're probably not throwing over a third time. So uh, I, I think that it, like you said, it doesn't eliminate the strategy of pickoffs. It actually, in some ways, uh, I think makes it more complicated, but not necessarily in a good way. I, I don't like the way that that goes. I'm, I'm more old school. I would have been fine without any rule. But if they wanted to put one in place, uh, bare minimum, I would say it needs to be stepped up an extra pickoff move, maybe even two, because I, I don't like how that really impacts the ability to to have strategy as a, as a pitcher trying to, trying to pick a runner off. So... I think the pitch clock uh, probably got a lot of press, but I think the shift may have even gotten more press, uh, a little bit less nuance to this rather straightforward for the most part. Two infielders must be on each side of the base, and then four infielders must be on infield dirt or grass. So pretty self-explanatory. 
on this one. How do you see this impacting both defenses and offenses, and especially the likes of Kyle Schwarber, Joey Gallo, um, even Rowdy Telez, of course, uh, Brewers left-handed slugger. So how do you see this impacting all of that now? I think it will have less of an impact than people expect because most shifts that they have, even the extreme shifts on left-handed hitters, if you can kind of in your head imagine the alignment, first base is a little bit, first baseman's a little bit more hugging the line, second baseman in deep right field. The shortstop is somewhere, I'd say about halfway between the normal second baseman positioning and second base itself. So if you slide over the shortstop, so now the shortstop instead basically is playing up the middle, is is like essentially straddling the base, then like they, I think that will make a difference, but I don't think it will make the difference that people realize. I think the bigger part of it is that the infielders have to be on the infield dirt. So they can't play way back, and that's gonna that's gonna eliminate the ground ball that goes to the right fielder also known as a second baseman, and then it's thrown to first for an out. I think that's going to be the bigger difference. And I think we'll see perhaps an uptick in singles from Rowdy you mentioned. I think Christian Yelich even more than Rowdy, perhaps. Yelich seems to be victim to the shift a lot. I don't think, though, that it will create this drastic switch that all, all of a sudden Joey Gallo is now a very good player once again, or now we won't have the likes of you know, Ryan Howard or something like those, those kind of players, they'll still be shifted on. It'll be a little bit more moderated, but it's not that the shift is banned. It's just that there are more restrictions on the shift. Yeah. But when I think about the second baseman playing, like you said, shallow right field uh, in, in some of those more drastic shifts, I do see a lot of singles robbed from that position. That would be line shots over the second baseman's head and playing on the, the infield dirt, uh, or grass, I guess. Um, although it doesn't sound necessarily too extreme, thinking back, like you said, visualizing where the Brewers position a second baseman um, on some of those 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 dead pull hitters or, or guys that have you know the big shift going on, the second baseman can be a good 10, 20 feet um, into the outfield. So I think that is. I, I personally feel like that's a little bit of an understatement as far as the impact it'll have. I would agree that we should expect more singles from Telez Yelich. Um, and players alike with that, I would say, I guess if you want to call it gap opening up, um, it certainly gives them more of an opportunity to do that. Um, so I, I personally think there will be a bigger bigger impact than than what you're sharing. I, how we quantify that, I'm not really sure. Um, I guess we'll have to just see. It's probably more of one of those things, just, just anecdotal. Um, but I, I do think this will actually have a, a larger impact on the game. And it should obviously bolster certain bats as well who've been a little bit muted by the shift, but I, I certainly agree with you as well. Um, it's not going to shift anybody, you know, who was an average hitter to be one of the best in, in baseball or anything like that. But I would say that some of those players are a little bit more muted. And I'd be curious, I, I would expect to see Rowdy Telez return to the Brewers again next year. So I'll be curious to see the performance he has next year as well compared to this year. Overall, has had a pretty solid year at the plate. Um, so we'll see if he's able to improve upon this year uh, with maybe more singles or, or who knows? Maybe that's for some reason uh, having a little bit more equalization across the board in, in the infield defensively. Uh, maybe that didn't end up, uh, or I should say maybe the shift didn't end up helping as much as, as we thought it did. So I think it's one of those things we'll just have to compare, look at probably, you know, 
I don't know, 10 to 30 players who have the more severe shifts and see what kind of performance they put up next year compared to this. And I think that's the best way we can compare um, to see what kind of impact the shift has. One, one more minor note that I touched on already. The bases will now be 18 um, inches as opposed to 15 with the main intent for that, like we talked about with the pickoffs, hoping for more stolen base attempts and stolen bases in the game. Not necessarily a major change there, um, but a, a, a bit of a small nuanced rule change for next year. So lots of lots of rule changes. I, I think it is interesting to see how that'll impact the game. I, I personally am intrigued to see how the, the, the change in the shift rules will impact guys, like I said, Telez and Yelich. And I think the only way to do that is to look at those guys and, and compare performance this year to 2023. So any, any other thoughts, David, that you have on the rule change? I would say that I'm excited to see how the pitch clock rules take shape in Major League Baseball. And I am in favor of games being shorter. It's not that I that I find games to be like so long and drawn out, but it's more that there just is a lot of dead time. So I think if you can organically cut down that dead time, I would be in favor of seeing games played in two hours and 40 minutes instead of three hours. Uh, and and the bases, I'm, I'm actually a little bit intrigued by that to see if it really does make a difference to have slightly bigger bases. Nobody's really talking about that. And I don't think that's by any means the biggest news to come out of these rule changes. But I am interested to see if that makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Will be a little bit of a twist to the 2023 season. Uh, so we'll stay tuned for that. David, we touched on, of course, the Brewers positioning in the playoff picture. There are two games back behind the Padres. We're recording this here Sunday night and three and a half behind the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, more or less out of the, any contention, of course, for the National League Central. So putting our focus on to the wild card, Brewers have 21 games left in this season, which is, like I said, crazy to think about. Pretty unique. The Brewers have 15 of those 21 games at home. So a huge advantage for the Brewers as they approach the end of the season. And they've got some good competition, and they've also got uh, their their divisional rivals, the Cardinals. Um, they'll be facing off four times of those 21 games. Outside of the Cardinals, they've got three against the Yankees, three against the Mets, four against the Reds, four against the Marlins, and three against the D-backs, who they faced uh, pretty recently. So the Brewers certainly have a chance here to make a run. Uh, we talked about three pitchers hopefully coming back in the next couple of weeks. Um, at different times in, in Ashby, Lauer, and Peralta. Could this be a chance for the Brewers to get hot here in September and maybe make a run at, at winning a wild card spot, getting hot at the right time, and making a run into the playoffs? What are your thoughts on that, David? I think it's possible. You know it's September because the Brewers are having a bullpen day on Tuesday. That uh, that did. I wouldn't say I was excited because of the circumstances surrounding it, but it did bring a little bit of nostalgia back to the 40-man September rosters, having Dan Jennings or Brent Suter start games and go one or two innings only. They didn't announce who the starter will be, although people are guessing that it'll be Brent Suter on Tuesday, and then Burns will go on Wednesday against the Cardinals as well. I do think they still have a chance. They're not out of it. The one, the one thing that makes it a little bit more difficult is – there are no more game 163s, and if the Brewers tie with either the Padres or the Phillies in the standings, the Brewers lose the tiebreaker because they lost the season series to each of those teams. So we have to finish a game ahead of either of those teams to even make it to the playoffs. 
I think it will come down to how the Brewers handle the Yankees and Mets at home. The Brewers have been at least pretty good against the bad teams. They've they took two out of three against the Mets, excuse me, the Reds this weekend. They swept the doubleheader against the Giants. And they have a lot of teams that they're playing in the schedule that are just okay. Miami, Cincinnati, Arizona even is is mediocre, although they're playing a little bit better. And playing two of those three teams at home, you would expect that they'd be able to go at least maybe seven and three. Uh, and, and in that regard, keep themselves in the playoff push. But they play four against the Cardinals. If they can split with them, I think what's going to come down to is how they fare against the Yankees and Mets. The Yankees are struggling a little bit. The Mets a little bit more than they were early in the year, but they're still fighting to win the division against the Braves. I think that's what it's going to come down to, the six-game homestand that's coming up next weekend. If they go at least 4-2, and two, I think the Brewers actually have a pretty good shot of making the playoffs. If they don't fare very well against the two New York teams, I'm not very optimistic about their chances. Yeah, this this week for the Brewers was a bit of a do-or-die week after the lackluster performance uh, last weekend. And the Brewers did what they needed to do, like you said, uh, taking care of the Giants and, and the Reds for the most part, uh, keeping themselves right in the race. I, I mean, the Brewers could have found themselves, you know, sitting back four games back at the end of the week, and, and it probably would have been looking pretty bleak at this point. But two games can happen pretty quick, and when you've got 15 of 21 at home, certainly leads you to believe that, you know, a, a team that is certainly above average both in the standings and talent-wise, uh, the Brewers have the opportunity to go on a little bit of a hot streak here, maybe win 14 or 15 of these games, and, and like you said, uh, leapfrog the Padres or even the Phillies for a, a wild card spot. It is interesting to note that you said no game 163. A bit disappointed by that because um, that's certainly a lot of fun to see. But I understand that with the three wild cards, they did have to sa- sort of sacrifice um, that for that. So um, kind of on this note, David, you we, we've talked about this before on the podcast uh, as the Brewers have made the playoffs uh, several years in a row, obviously, at this point. And uh, we were at the game. I think this might have even actually been touched on at the podcast we did live at American Family Field. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that podcast, you can go back a couple couple weeks. We did a, an episode live at American Family Field, which was uh, pretty interesting. Just pretty much turned the mics on and, and started talking baseball, which was a lot of fun. But we were talking about how the the Brewers have their division championship flags uh, below the uh, or yeah below the um, press box at American Family Field, and how they also have wild card flags there for each of the wild card berths, which of course include 2008 but also 2020, uh, 2019. What are your thoughts, David, on, on whether the Brewers should continue to put up wildcard flags? Hopefully we've got one this year in 2022, uh, but do the Brewers continue to put those up, or are we are we thankfully to a point where we can uh, avoid having to put those up and, and just proudly show our division championships? I hope we get to that point. I would say they're they're running out of room, and I don't know if they are going to choose a new spot to put the the banners if they keep doing that. I think what they should do is create a banner that says wild card births or postseason births or something along those lines, and then just list the years. You don't need a separate banner for each one, but if you put wild card births 2008, uh, 2019, 2019, 2020, I think that would, that would be sufficient. The other idea I had is what if you had a flag that, that – puts like the round they were at so they could put 2008 NLDS 
2020 wild card series. Do you, do you have those, but then only do it if you make it to the NLDS? That's another idea I had because I don't, I don't exactly like this to celebrate the idea of just we made the playoffs, uh, especially with now 12 out of 30 teams making the playoffs. Winning the division, I think, is something that's worth celebrating, putting on the board. Uh, those are those are difficult to get, but a wild card berth, not so much. So I, that's one thing that I would consider. Although, if there is anything about the Brewers, it's that they like celebrating any amount of success. That is a very fair statement, and, and I would generally agree with you. I think that your idea to have just one banner with all the wild card berths makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and perhaps even considering, you know, when they did make it to the NLCS, noting that, because that, that really is more of an accomplishment a lot of times than winning the wild card. So I don't know, I guess uh, just random random brewers, things that you, you think of when you're at American Family Field. So as we wrap up our trivia question of the day today, brewers have used 51 players so far here as we're in just about mid-September. Is this more or less than the number of players the brewers used in the 2021 season. I am going to go with less. That would be correct. That is less uh, than the Brewers used last year. By the end of the year, the Brewers have used 61 players, um, which is just nuts when you think about a 25-man roster. And we have the likes of uh, John Axford, of course, appearing for the 2021 Brewers. That's always going to be a classic stat that, that nobody's going to remember. Travis Shaw was a 2021 Brewer, which is also a bit strange of course, his time uh, briefly, and all sorts of fun names, Billy McKinney, Daniel Robertson, Derek Fisher, uh, and then the, the, of course, always random relievers, uh, Ryan Weber, Phil Bickford, J.P. Fireisen, who wasn't all that random, um, Sal Romano, Patrick Weigel, all of the, all the fun names. Of course, uh, everybody's favorite, Daniel Norris, but 61 players uh, that the Brewers used in 2021 Brewers are going to have to have to, I guess, call up players pretty quick, or I don't know what what how they're going to add ten more players in the last couple of weeks to catch last year's number. Um, but yeah, crazy to think about. Mid September, Brewers have already used fifty one players. Tells you a little bit of how the game is. But the Brewers have also found some success with some no name players. You know, think about Peter Strzelecki and the success that he's had as he stepped into a, a larger role for the Brewers in the absence now of Josh Hader and. Overall, I would say uh, underperformance across the bullpen. Strzelecki's appeared in 19 games, 24 innings, and a three ERA. He has been solid for the Brewers in the bullpen, and that wasn't somebody that had, we had a lot of high expectations for. David, do you recall, I'm going to put you on the spot here, in our draft that we did at the beginning of the season, for those of you that weren't listening, David and I did a draft of, uh, of basically kind of the nobodies of the Brewers that had opportunities or chances to appear in games across the 2022 season, and we did a draft on one of our podcasts. I know one of us did select Strzelecki. I'm curious if you recall which of us uh, had him. Um, so actually, Strzelecki was not a we, – we drafted the minor league free agent signings, so he wasn't on the list because he, he, had, he had been in the organization prior to that. But I was just thinking about that draft, and you're destroying me in it. I haven't, I haven't calculated the totals or anything, but you have – Jason Alexander, which Jason Alexander alone would beat field because he's pitched like 70 innings for the Brewers or something like that. Um, and I mean, I guess I have Jonathan Davis. He was my last pick, actually. So, um, and I think he, oh, I, I had him and Connor Sadzak 
But yeah, you had Jason Alexander, Trevor Kelly, and Mark Mathias, who have all spent time in the majors for the Brewers. So safe to say, I think that you've got that one in the bag. That's right. That's right. I forgot about Strzelecki. I was mixing uh, Sadzak up with, with Strzelecki. I forgot that Strzelecki wasn't part of the draft, but I, I guess it doesn't hurt to bring up that uh, I uh, had the wherewithal to draft Jason Alexander, who has turned out to be a, a decent depth arm of the Brewers uh, for this season. So, David, as we close today, what is your stat of the day? Today's stat of the day is 45, and that is the number of home runs that Albert Pujols has hit against his career, against the Brewers during his career. The first one came against Paul Rigdon back on July 1st of 2001. He hit two on August 14th against the Brewers of this year, and one of those came against Aaron Ashby. Aaron Ashby was three years old when he hit his first home run against the Brewers. So showing the, the age of Pujols now in his 22nd year and just today passing A-Rod for fourth all-time on the home run leaderboard at 697. He's got about three more weeks to get three to get 700 or 18 to pass Babe Ruth. I don't know if that one's going to happen. Probably not the 18, but if you put him up against the Brewers, uh, he certainly would have a better chance. But I, I'll be rooting for, for Pujols to hit three. We did just call up Trevor Kelly, so... We've got a chance. Yeah, we got a chance. We got a chance. So, yeah, pretty crazy to see Albert Pujols and the greatness. Uh, certainly a lot of respect uh, for the many years of, of him destroying Brewers pitching. Um, but one of the greats of all time. So, uh, there we have it, our stat of the day, Albert Pujols. Brewers going to have a, a very important week. At this point, just about every week, every game is important. Uh, off day on Monday the 12th. But then a three-game series against the Cardinals. And then, David, like you mentioned, the important series against the Yankees and the Mets, that six-game stretch. Um, we'll continue uh, into end of next week and early next week. So we'll be back again, of course, next weekend to wrap up uh, this coming week. The Brewers, hopefully, success against the Cardinals and Yankees and, and where they find themselves in the wild card race. Either way, we'll have you covered as always. This is Peter and David Go signing off. Go Brewers! Thank you for listening to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review our show on whichever platform you're listening on. If you enjoyed it, consider supporting us through the link down below. See you next time.